spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead. You have been warned. I am your soft and sweet, wise and wonderful host, Mike Luce, and that over there, waving his socks adroitly over his head, is the mystical, magical Max Levine. Well, it's been a rocky road traipsing back through our childhood, but we've finally come to the end. This is the last episode of our series, When We Was Kids. So far, <laughs> we've plumbed the depths with Captain Nemo, paid a heavy toll, sung for our supper, gone back. Uh, forward in time, yellowed our submarines, raced our grates, and banged our chitties. We've even interrupted ourselves twice to roast the Oscars over a big roaring flame of glamour and goo, and to visit a group of singing cats! Get on with it! Yeah, right, 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 right. <clears throat> this week, it's my choice. My all-time favorite science fiction movie, 1956's Forbidden Planet. <laughs> Are you some sort of devil fish? What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> that was a flawless recreation of the opening theme. Ah, was it? <clears throat> anyway, we get robots, monsters from the ids, space captains, flying saucers, and Walter's pigeon. What more could you ask for? <laughs> Why, you could ask for some information on how to contact us. That's what. Why, you can use our email address, which is us at maxmikemovies.com, to suggest new show ideas, new series ideas, where we get off, and where we can go. You can also <laughs> find all our tasty, yummy, back-issue goodness episodes on our website, which is, of course, maxmikemovies.com. We're on that social media as well, Facebook and Twitter. Tweet, tweet. We are Max Mike Movies. Now... Yep, you can also find us on Spotify. Oh yeah, that thing. Is that social media? What, what would you consider that? That's a streaming service. Streaming service. Ooh, streaming service. Mm. Yep. For all your streaming needs. So Streaming, da streaming down your legs, streaming tears, whatever. That was unnecessary. Fired. No, it wasn't. <laughs> fired. It was entirely necessary and essential. Uh, yeah, so is your being fired. Right. The show. Trivia for Forbidden Planet. Budget, $1.9 million. Take. This was 1956. That's quite a lot of money. It was. It was actually one of very few high-budgeted science fiction movies of the 50s and really early 60s, too. Uh, take, $2.3 million. Oops! <laughs> Dear. Yeah, it was actually very critically well-received. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when they showed the first cut to a test audience... The reaction was so good that they just left it that way. They didn't bother re-editing it, which is not often oh. the case. So, But I think it's actually made plenty in its following years. Um, it's it's not... I wouldn't call it a cult classic. I think it's really just considered a science fiction classic. Yeah. And we'll have lots to talk about. The soundtrack includes not one traditional instrument. Instead, there are electronic noises or modulations or tonalities. Is there a theremin? There is not. Oh, huh. No, there's not. All of the sounds were mated by separate circuits. They had to create a new circuit for each sound. And they were created by Lewis and B.B. Barron. Their odd avant-garde approach would predate the first Moog or Moog synthesizer by eight years. Yeah, they were actually found playing in a Greenwich Village club. And somebody's like, I need that for our movie. And it's like, okay. So, And the club owner said, thank God, get them out of here. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Though it's utterly unrecognizable, Altera's Garden is a redress of the Munchkin City set from 1939's Wizard of Oz. <laughs> the animated special effects were produced by Disney animator Joshua Midor, or Maydor, who was on loan to MGM for this movie. First movie to feature Robbie the Robot. Hey, Robbie. Who, who would go on to be in many other films and TV show episodes. I think all of them. Yeah, he's, yeah, they re, he was even in commercials. I remember him selling yeah, I, something. Snack packs, I Is remember. Is that what it was? Is that the pudding uh, stuff? It was the pudding yep, stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, boy. Who? Uh, his designer, Robert Kenoshta, was an industrial designer most known for various appliances, including washing machines. He would go on to design perhaps the second most famous pop culture robot, the robot from Lost in Space. Who never got a name. Uh, I've seen it. Uh, what is it? The YM3 is one and the other is the B... B9. B9 yeah, but, right. but no that wasn't ever, really a name. That was like a serial number it, or something. He was always just called Robot. Yeah. Robbie's cost, $125,000. Oh. Yeah, he was expensive. 
This is the first leading role for Leslie Nielsen, likely better known for his late career change to comedy in movies like Airplane and TV shows like Police Squad in color. Just want to wish you both good luck. We're all counting on you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the doomed ship Bellerophon was named after the Greek hero, the greatest slayer of monsters of his time. He actually predates uh, Hercules, interestingly enough. His greatest yeah. triumph was over the Chimera. Sadly, this ship was not up to that task, but we'll get into that later. <clears throat> he was also the only only mortal ever to ride Pegasus. Right, yeah, uh, as opposed to, um, what, what was that dreadful film? Uh, uh Oh, Clash, Clash of, the of the Titans. Titans, where they gave it to Perseus, yeah. which, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Altair IV is part of the United Federation of Planets, at least according to one episode of Star Trek <laughs> Deep Space Nine. Uh, huh. I honestly think somebody sort of snuck that in, figuring nobody would notice, but, yep, there you go. Which else? Uh, Spock, I, I have to get down there and make out with Anne Francis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, we're, we're going to get to Star Trek because, yeah, uh, this actually can't be true. It cannot be canon because, as we'll see, there's a reason, I'll, there's a very good reason Altair 4 cannot oh. be part of the United Federation of oh, Planets. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah we'll get I, I that. get that. Uh, this is the first science fiction film to take place entirely away from Earth. We never mm. see any Earth, no Earth. Oh, this is the first one. Yep. Oh, okay. This is also perhaps the first film reference of Hyperdrive. And boy, is that ship fast. It's super fast. Over 50 fast. <laughs> hey, Nancy, sluggo. Uh, this film was re-released in 1972 as one of MGM's Kitty Matinee movies, not unlike Captain Mino and Nemo in the Underwater City, although six minutes of footage was removed to secure that precious G rating. I'm betting the makeout scenes and Al Altera in the swimming pool. Yeah, which is oh, it's so racy, uh, especially yeah, when you're like you can see she's wearing <laughs> a dress, a tunic, or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there is sort of a sequel, or at least there's a film uh, released right after this with Robbie the Robot as Robbie the Robot. And oh, is that Invisible Boy? It is, and it, and they also have the mention of the the ship in this, which is the C fifty seven D. Uh, it is The Invisible Boy from 1957, and it's a very odd movie about a computer that tries to take over the world. Robbie is said to have come from some scientist who claims to have invented time travel, and there is a photo of Robbie and the C-57D having arrived back on Earth supposedly in the year 2300 and something. That being said, it's really not a sequel. Uh, I watched it last night after Forbidden Planet, and it's... You probably haven't uh, remembered this much, and there's reason for nope. that. Yeah. <clears throat> I'd never seen it before, but there you go. Four, count them, four cast members from this would appear in Columbo. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that uh, one of up. Of course I am. Leslie Nielsen would appear twice, as would Anne Francis. Richard Anson, who would appear later as Oscar Goldman in The Six Million Dollar Man, appeared once. Yep. And Robbie the Robot would appear once as well. Max was not kidding when he said he was in everything. He was. Yeah, he was in, I think he was in six or seven episodes of The Twilight Zone. Um, he was in a couple of episodes of Lost in Space. Yes, he was. Um, so they got their money out of that prop. Oh, yeah. Um, he's now in private hands, so. Warren Stevens, who played Doc Ostro, would appear in a Star Trek episode titled By Any Other Name. But now to the plot. Plot. The plot. The plot. The space vessel C-57D is on a mission. Fly to the far-off planet of all... We're, we're on a mission from God. No. No, we're not. Oh. <laughs> Fly on... Carry on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Fired! <laughs> Fly to the far-off planet of Altair Ford to find out what happened to the crew of the Bellerophon. After a year in space, the ship arrives only to find no evidence of a colony or any other kind of habitation on the planet. Just as things look dire, a message comes from the surface from the sole survivor. The sole and survivor. The survivor. <laughs> Stay alive. Okay. <clears throat> it's Dr. Morbius, and he tells the crew that everything's fine here, situation normal, how are you? And to please just say hi to Earth and don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Well, Commander J.J. Adams, yep, J.J. Adams. Really? That's his name? Because yep. he's never. nobody ever says his name. He does. He says J.J. Adams. Yep, oh, John J. Adams. Huh? Yep. And I, huh. I, yeah, so you may know J.J. Adams. He would later go on to direct films like uh, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and The... Um, uh, no. No? Different... No, uh, that's, different that's Abrams. Oh, it's not J.J. <laughs> Adams? Oh, okay. No, no, I'm pretty sure. It's just like... Uh, 
you know, they've run onto this planet and they've run into Morbius the Living Vampire. <laughs> yeah, different different Morbius, yeah. Oh! Anyway, Commander J.J. Adams can't go just wandering off. He has to see what's going on. Reluctantly, Morbius gives him coordinates to land. Once on the surface of this very alien world, the commander is greeted by a robot who offers to take him, the second-in-command and the ship's doctor, sound familiar, to Morbius's <laughs> residence. Let's go away, team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There he meets the doctor, who is a good deal more pleasant than he was on the radio. His story is that some unseen planetary force killed all the others in the Bellerophon's crew except himself and his wife, who died of natural causes a year later. Since then, it's just him, all alone, happy to work on... Alien Leftovers! Oh, and uh, by the way, my daughter. <clears throat> Seems this was the home to a uh, homeworld to a race of beings called the Krell, who were so far advanced beyond humans as to appear as gods. Morbius has spent the last 20 years working slowly through their knowledge, trying to make headway. Adam says he'll have to get orders as he has nothing to cover this. Morbius once again tries to get him to just take off and leave them alone before the planetary force makes mincemeat out of him. I'm gonna make mincemeat out of J.J. Adams! Adams, chin jutting, will not take any of that guff, so heads back to the ship to get things started. And from there, things start to go terribly wrong, as the unseen creature first wrecks equipment, then the engineer, and finally brazenly attacks the ship. Somehow the center of all this seems to be Morbius himself, though he can't see the id for the trees. The monster <laughs> comes from him. I see what you did there. Did, did you? Good. <clears throat> that yeah, means you yeah. can see the id. Anyway, <clears throat> in an iconic showdown, Morbius must finally face the fact that his own hidden hates and fears are what fuels the alien's machine, giving life to the most primitive part of his mind. Fearing that the same thing would happen to anyone else coming upon the great machines of the Krell, with his dying breath, he has Adams throw the switch on the self-destruct. Adams, Morbius' daughter Altera, and the... Remaining crew get out of there just in time as the entire planet is blown to tiny chunks of Krell. The <laughs> end. Wow, that's a lot of plot. Yes, it is. Um, and that's that we will be talking about this. But first... The Lowdown. Earl Holloman! Earl Holloman! <laughs> who plays the cook. That's Cookie. his name. Even in the credits, he has no other name. He's Cook. He's Cookie. Yeah, he's basically <laughs> chef comic relief. He is, and he actually was an addition to the original script. They decided they needed it, and I actually like his presence there. He does bring a little bit of levity and some really dry moments. Mm. Um, as, there as isn't a lot of humor in this movie. Just him. Yeah. Um, however, some of his humor is somewhat questionable because basically his whole aim is to find something and to... Um, bet it as soon as possible yeah. and he doesn't seem to really care what that is because at one point he asks if the robot <laughs> is a he or a she yeah there's like, actually there's actually a thematic reason for that but we'll get to that yes we will uh apparently there was a scene that was written but not filmed where he was making mention to Robbie the robot that, uh, gosh, I sure am lonely. And oh! So Robbie brings him a female chimp. But... <laughs> oh, that was nice of him. I thought you were going to say he was brought him a fleshlight or something. No, but for some odd reason, I can't imagine why they decided not to film that scene. Yeah, yeah that could get awkward, especially if the, if the cook was into it. And if I should be fair, Cookie does have one other aim, and that is to get drunk as quickly as possible, yeah, and, which he does. Yeah, by the way, I'm so, it's lucky he didn't die, because he, he gives uh, Robbie, a, or Robbie takes his last drop of Kentucky bourbon right. and replicates 60 gallons of it, <laughs> well, which all of which pints. he gets four pints, dude. Yeah. That's half a gallon of bourbon. Which tells you something about Cookie. <laughs> Maybe that's I mean, why he will go to bed with anything that moves. Well, of course, also, also apparently Cookie is, and I, I still love this. I'm sorry, the guys, the the crew. First of all, as you like to point out, this is a this is a really white movie. Oh yes, very, there is very not white. a hint. Uh, Robbie is the only you know non Caucasian, and his voice. <laughs> That's that's pushing it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, <laughs> well, to be fair, the deer seem they like it could be, you know, and, and the tiger yeah. is definitely not. First know, time, that's, that's every time I color. see that, all I think is a tiger on Altair Four must escape from the zoo. Although, um, to be fair, you know, there is the, there are scenes with Earth fauna, and just when I'm going, oh come on, how did they get like bunnies and chipmunks? They explain it. The Krell visited Earth and at some point and took home samples. 
Yes, I. How my they... feeling is that's not where the animals came from. Even though they say, my feeling is that, like everything else, they made them. So I didn't go into this too much in the plot because it, it's a heavy plot. Um, the machine in question is basically a thought-activated replication machine. The idea is that you can make whatever you need or want appear merely by imagining it. Well, and the Krell, hang on, the Krell could do this. I, I don't think Morbius can, uh, because he's not, I mean, as he says, by they have like an IQ machine, and he rates at basically sub-moron level, but his unconscious can do it. That his unconscious creates the monster. I don't think he can he can summon things into being the way uh, the Krell could. He needs Robbie for that. And by the way, Robbie is a hell of a piece of technology. He is a walking replicator. He can make yes, anything. My question was always, why is he so slow? Why do they give him legs and not some kind of anti-grav or wheels or hoverboard or something? Because, my God, that robot takes forever to get anywhere. Well, but here's the thing. Like, all he really has to do is get around the house. He doesn't have to go anywhere until the people from the C-57D show up. And also, to be fair, Morbius is a philologist, which, for those who don't know, which I didn't know, is a, uh expert on languages. So how the hell does he know how to build a robot? You, you should know that. Our, our uh, esteemed listener, uh, Herr Halbwitz, has a master's degree in medieval German philology. Oh, of course I... Uh, it's right here on my hand, tattooed. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the only. That's how I found out what the word meant. Yeah. See, there you go. Yeah. Um, I I don't know because it seems to me that he's Morbius is portrayed as somebody whose only real interest is the acquisition of knowledge. Um, and this is going to get to one of my talking points. And one of my talking points is that this there's a theme in this film which was very common in 1950s and probably even into the early 60s science fiction films. And it's the We Are Not God theme, where science goes astray. And that's Dude, what happens when you meddle with the forces or playing goes, God. That goes back to the 19th century. That's part of the essence of, of Frankenstein. Yeah, but it's in for 50s and 60s films, it's like if you have science fiction, you have this. So I'm not saying this is like the beginning of that theme, just that it's very prevalent. It's almost yeah. like don't try to, you know, aim too high. It's the whole Icarus thing, right? He don't forget, try to aim. T- he forgot that man was a feeling creature. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Graves is not here. <laughs> that was and, from It Conquered the World. But <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, so there, there, there are no similarities yeah. between that movie and this one. Yeah. No, that, but, that's true. That is a very common theme in early science fiction, which is, you know, don't reach too high. Don't aim too high. Which, again, is kind of a contradiction in terms because here we have people who are leaving the solar system, who are reaching beyond, what is it, uh, and beyond the frosty wastes to touch the, the face of God. I mean, if you want to put it that way, sure. Um, and I will say real quickly, one thing I did like is in the opening narration, they specifically say men and women, although there aren't any in this ship, but that's, no. yeah. Uh, it was still yeah. nice to hear that. It still but, gets me. Remember how he dis- how the commander describes his uh, his crew when he's basically telling Altera not to dress so sexy, you know, in her <laughs> in her terrible in her terribly sexy, you know, 50s mini dress. Hey, first time miniskirt appeared in a movie. Yeah. Uh, and he's describing them as like 26 super perfect physical specimens. Highly yeah. competitive, super I'm like really I'm surprised he didn't say <laughs> and cookie. <laughs> <laughs> None of them exactly look like they're the Ubermensch. Yeah, you know, it's fine. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's all right. It's just he makes such a point of it. At least it doesn't say eighteen super throbbing, hulking, <laughs> sweaty. You know. Well, in uh, effect, that's what he is saying. He's saying you got to watch it. These guys have been in space with nothing but other men for a year, and they're horny as heck. Well, we know Cookie is, because he's looking <laughs> at that robot kind of funny. Um, but yeah, anyway, this this whole, you know, it's 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 best, I think, um, summarized by Dr. Patton Oswalt, who said, science is all about coulda, not Gosh. shoulda. And that's that's where we are, because the, the twist of the film um, is that the Krell made this giant machine. It is 20 miles squared. It is this gargantuan thing. Oh, it's bigger and the, I, than that. It's like two No, fo- that's what they say. It's oh, two, thought, 20 miles square. Oh, okay. 
And they made this to free themselves from instrumentality, which, of course, doesn't make sense because the machine itself is instrumentality. Yeah. But the idea is that, hey, we can go around nude and wish for <laughs> banana daiquiris or whatever. Yeah, the idea was it would, it would it's uh, the miracle machine. It can turn thought into reality. But right. what they didn't count on, and I have to say, this is a really interesting idea. Yes, it is. They didn't consider... That they that advanced as they were, they still had the same kind of unconscious, subconscious issues that humans had. That there is still the id, the the suppressed, ang- the, the the terribly selfish, violent, the dark side, the doctor, the Mister Hyde, that uh, science fiction writers have loved to talk about. That's in all of us, and that that also had access to this machine, and in effect, they ended up destroying themselves that way. Right. And it is a very brainy concept, especially for the times. Yeah. Um, and this will lead me to another one of my talking points. Uh, Gene Roddenberry said that this was very influential in his creating of Star Trek. What's interesting is that I actually, till I saw that, never saw the parallels. Because I'd say it was actually a blueprint for Star Trek. This feels very much like an extended episode from the original series. Oh, even I mean, visually. Oh, yeah, visually. And also even down to the whole when... Altera is talking to Jerry, you know, the prowling wolf, and she's basically doing the kiss. What is kiss? kiss. Show me kiss. kiss. (laughs) Yeah. That's right out of Star Trek, or Star Trek obviously lifted that right from there. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's very Star Trek. It's very much about, you know, the exploration and a lot of manly men and maybe one or two women. Well, in this case, one. Um, I mean, I guess you can count Robbie. Why not? We can count him as a robot of color. We can count him as a woman because uh, God knows sec- uh, Cookie gen- wants him to. A, a so. gender-neutral robot, yeah. Yeah, he presents as... No, never mind. Um, I would say that there really is only one other film that approaches a concept like this, and it's even just approaching, and that's The Day the Earth Stood Still. Hmm. Um, yeah, that was the one I, I thought to compare this with, and that one came first. Yeah, that was, I think what was that? That was the forties, wasn't it? No, no, it was fifty one. It was fifty one. Excuse me. Yeah, I, I, it, that's Michael Rennie. Uh, that's yeah. a terrific film. Yeah, um, there's a small handful of science fiction films that came out of the fifties that are actually really interesting and good films. This, for me, is... Well, I will get to that at the end. But yeah, unfortunately, they're buried in a mountain of utter garbage. Oh, yes. You know, it came from somewhere. Uh, uh, the yeah. thing from Party Beach thing and Space whatever. Space children! <laughs> Space children, teenagers from outer space. Oh, my God, yeah. So, apparently, the this was even, like, originally thought of as a B-picture, which mm. it's a hell of a B-picture. It really is. Um, yeah, but so Star Trek, the original Star Trek, obviously owes a lot to this movie. Um, there's a lot of science fiction films that uh, would be influenced by this for a long time. One of the other things it brings up, although it does it, like there's no obvious attempt to present it, but I would say is definitely in play, are Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, which for those who don't know, he wrote these. Sadly, they're not actually laws. He just thought, this is a good idea, we should do this, and I think a lot of people assume that all robots work this way, when in fact, no robots yeah, work no, this only way. The, only the robots in his books and on TV. I mean, I think Data also had uh, a similar what do they call it? Asenian logic. Yeah, it was, but this first law, no robot a, shall harm well, or through... Hmm? I have I haven't actually written out. Oh, go ahead. A robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. That's rule number one. Rule number two, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And rule or law number three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. Right, and rule number four, there is no <laughs> rule number four. <laughs> um pretty damn smart that asimov yeah that was actually if i was going to design artificial intelligences with the bodies and uh, that were stronger and more capable i would definitely etch those into the consciousness and in his idea it's not simply that they're programming they're part of the operating system the robots cannot function without them mm-hmm. which yeah that's exact that is yeah pretty smart cookie that guy yeah, otherwise we get Colossus the Forbin Project, and yes. nobody wants that. Or Skynet, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you could even apply this to artificial intelligence without a physical form other than the computer it sits in, right? So yep. if we have AI, 
you could substitute the word robot with AI, and I think it's a damn good idea. I honestly wish we were doing it, but, you know, Dr. Patton Oswalt. <clears throat> so, yeah, so Morbius has, the only reason that he's survived is he's the guy who can actually read anything to do with the Krell, and apparently his intellect is big enough that when he connects himself to the Krell machine, what happens is you get zapped. And if you survive, um, it actually increases your intellectual capacity a number of times. And so at that point, he's finally able to actually read and decipher some of the Krell writing and figures out what's going on. The problem is, like I said, he's looking at the big thing and not the little thing. And what ends up happening is that the, the, the doctor of the ship, Dr. McCoy, I don't know, sneaks into the, the Krell lab, takes the brain boost, and lives long enough to go, oh, I get it, I know what hell, what happened, horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> All these attacks, they're his fault. Yeah, um, and he said and he's too what... close to it. He couldn't see it. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that was also an interesting thing, the idea that the Krell machine would boost your intellect simply by attempting to use it. Yeah. Um. So this is a film I don't remember when I first saw it. I saw it as a kid. Um, there were certain science fiction films that I would watch and rewatch when I could. This was one of those once a year's if I was lucky uh, growing up. Max, when was the first time you saw this? Boy, I think the first time I actually saw it was at one of the science fiction marathons. Okay. So I was a teenager. What's interesting is that its world premiere was actually at a science fiction convention. Huh. That's so. That's- yeah, they released at a science fiction convention. I wish I, could, I, I looked it up. I forget the name of it. Um, but it uh, was there and apparently did very well. They released it in 100 cities after that. And all things considered, it was really the budget that kept it from being a success because it just was so expensive. And they really spent a lot of money on this movie. Um, the special effects for the time were really amazing. And I don't think we'd actually see anything close to this probably until the late 60s. Um, that being said, of course, they're dated. Um, they, they are very dated. But f- again, if you look at it in context, first of all, the backdrops are beautiful. They're gorgeous. They're wonderfully painted. Yep. And uh, the practical effects are pretty good. They, you know, this isn't like pie plates on strings. <laughs> you know, You're or, looking right at Ed Wood, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Or, or you know, car- cardboard boxes painted silver and we're told they're robots or you know a, a, a diver's helmet on top of a gorilla suit we mean no harm to your, your planet. planet we mean no harm to your planet <laughs> you are roman they are human you know it just <laughs> yeah. this this is an order of magnitude over a lot of the others that said some of it is still a little silly i mean the blasters which draw little animated lines which look okay but it's like wow those are the slowest light pulses i've ever seen it's like they're throwing them at the enemy <laughs> unfortunately the uh, beams travel at uh, 24 frames a second <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty pretty much um and there are a few bits where they try to throw in some some comic relief with robbie that are just strange like when he's analyzing the bourbon he yeah. belches yeah, I didn't that's, understand that. And there's a line in there that's actually kind of... Well, again, I'm sure in the innocence of 1956, but at one point when Altera is trying to summon Robbie and he finally shows up and she's complaining that he took so long, sorry, miss, I was giving myself an oil job. <laughs> hey Well, like, you know... What was he doing? <laughs> C-3PO would do the same thing in Star Wars. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm well, also curious about this. He can apparently synthesize gems. Yes. Star sapphires take a week. Diamonds and emeralds he can do overnight. No, he said he had them on hand. Oh, oh, oh. All right. He did. Would one and two carrots? Uh, I oh, think no, it's like five, th- ten, and fifteen carrots. Carrots on hand. Yeah. Right. So he actually had them. Yeah, but again, he can synthesize gemstones. That's pretty impressive. Now, one of the things I liked about that is we see these necklaces she has, which would be worth a billion dollars. And nobody on the crew is like, uh, where are these gems? You know, like the guys with the gold in Captain Nemo. They're not like, uh, yeah, are you, if you have any necklaces you're not using, I'd love one. Nobody's doing any of that stuff. I, and there's a lot of little details like that in this film. Very small things that really work well. It's a nice touch. For example, the necklaces have almost no artistic quality to them. No, they're, they're just, just rocks on on chains, yeah. and her clothing is functional, 
but it's not particularly elegant. It's obvious these were made by people who've never seen other people's clothing. Yeah. Who haven't seen women's clothing, maybe in pictures, but they don't know what it really is supposed to look like. And it comes across that way, and that really works. And Altara, for me, when she first shows up, is actually a really nice breath of fresh air because she's smart, she speaks her mind, and she's utterly unaffected by the usual advances from Jerry Spaceman. Of course, then later she becomes more of a damsel, which is too yeah. bad. But it's really funny because when he does the, you know, let me show you this kiss thing, she's like, hmm... I don't get it. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, there must, be, there must be something wrong with me because I'm not feeling anything. I mean, like, she says, I don't feel any stimulation whatsoever. <laughs> and Jerry's like, right, okay, let's go. We're going to do this right. And he comes in and she's just like, yeah, I, nope. no, I don't get it. Nope. And it's nice because it's like usually it, there's this awkward thing where, you know, the guy on leave or whatever sees the, the native princess and they go off to the bus. And she's just like, yeah, I don't see the point. <laughs> Yeah, she's just utterly unimpressed by him. Yeah, and initially, uh, Commander Adams there is just like, you know, you really ought to get her to Earth at some point so she can meet, you know, some other people besides you. And she's like, Earth? Why would I want to go there? I got everything I need here. I got this great house. I've got Robbie. Uh, I have anything I want to eat or make. Uh, sure, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, although even Morbius says I should take her to Earth for her, pause, natural development. Which means, yeah. you know, eventually she's going to want to get busy. Yeah. yeah and uh, that's just going to get a little too weird. And, of course, what happens is that Commander Adams tries to break uh. up uh, her and Jerry because Jerry is a space wolf. He is, yeah. in fact, one of the, um, let's see how to put this, horn dogs from yeah. outer space. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and there is also that one moment I, I have to say I thought was a little annoying and it's a little out of place. Obviously, the attraction is between the commander, and, you know, J.J. Abrams and uh, Altera. <laughs> One of the things about Altera is she can she can snow white. She can talk to the animals, and they are all her woodland creature friends, including, for some reason, a Bengal tiger. I don't know why the Krell thought they should bring one of those back, but... Well, uh, see, that's, that's I know why you think, I think they were they created. Didn't. I think she made them, and that's they react the way she wants them to, which is how she imagined yeah. them. That's why until she makes out with command with the commander, and then immediately loses her connection with the animals. It's it's right out of only a virgin can control a unicorn. Well, my feeling was that actually what was going on was that Morbius didn't like the idea and when his jealousy was starting to show up and it was actually sort of like a little precursor to the id monster. I think that's re I think that's interesting, but I think you're reading too much into it. I think it was just a pretty standard morality thing that now she's be she's gone from being a girl to being, you know, he's made her a woman by well, sucking on her face for a couple of minutes. <laughs> And uh, now she's lost. She's lost her innocence, and she's lost her connection to the natural world. I didn't read it that way, but I can definitely see that as being a point. And I can also see why you would be annoyed by it. Uh, sadly, we don't. Altera does end up being. I mean, she doesn't get trapped or twist her ankle or fall down a well, but she loses a little bit of the. How to put this? Her outgoingness towards she, the end of the film. She, she becomes. She loses her agency. She stops yeah. doing things and simply starts reacting to things and has to be saved. Mostly then, I mean, she starts screaming about nightmares and asking, you know, the commander to take her away. And, yeah. She, she she does turn on her father, which is a big deal because he's literally the only person she's ever known. Uh, her mother died when she, when, uh, she was less than a year old. Yeah. So, you know, um, which also means that uh, they basically, they got married on the ship, landed... Morbius and his wife got real busy. Uh, she had the baby and then died. Yeah. But also, Morbius got very jealous and possessive, which we see he actually is. And it was his creature as formed by his, what he calls the mindless primitive part of his brain that killed off all the other members of the Bellerophon. And he was just oblivious. He just didn't. It couldn't be me, of course not. I, I would never do such a thing. Um, is, which is, sorry, go ahead. Which, which is a great contrast between... I mean, if you want to think of it this way, this is where I believe things like prejudice come from. It's our lizard brain, the one that goes different, don't like, hate. And the more developed part of us is the one that puts that into place and says, no, 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 everything's fine, calm down. And what we're seeing is a machine that has access to both of them. Well, one of them takes conscious effort, right? We have to actually sit there and think about things. The other one's like, I'm thinking, do the thing I want. <laughs> Yeah, the idea is the id is the most primitive part of the brain. It's the thing, it's all the wants and desires, 
and it has no conscience. That's what the the superego is for. I'm superego! <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, one of the things that you uh, mentioned that we would be talking about, and I think that's one of the points that you're probably more interested in, is people claim, and I use the word claim on purpose, that this is a space version of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Yeah. It is not. So Max, would you tell us in what ways this is not? <laughs> Well, the plot is largely different. The characters, there's some analogs. Now, to be fair, there are some elements that are similar. The Tempest is about, you know, a, a, a sorcerer, an, a, man, a wizard, who lives on an island with his only daughter. They're the only humans there, and there are two beings there who serve him. Ariel, a spirit of the air and wind and sort of basically a fairy, and Caliban, who was now, unlike Robbie, didn't, unlike the monster from the Id... Uh, Prospero the wizard didn't create Caliban. Caliban was actually the native there. He's uh, and in effect Prospero enslaved him. Now admittedly Caliban also attacked Miranda, his daughter and there's some implication he may have sexually assaulted her. So Caliban is not a good character but he doesn't have the kind of power the id does. And what happens is a ship gets uh, shipwrecked and uh I think it doesn't actually, turn out that the. I think it's actually his brother. Yeah, his brother who banished Prospero is on that ship along with uh, this guy Ferdinand and some other nobles from Italy. And Ferdinand and Miranda fall in love. And Prospero hey, doesn't like that, but he doesn't try to kill Ferdinand. He tries to drive them away. And eventually they all leave together. Yeah. That's pretty much it. It's. Uh, Nobody actually dies, I don't think. I don't believe anyone does. Caliban, I think, may get imprisoned. I don't think he leaves with him, but he I don't think even he is killed. And Ariel is released. And the big thing in it is Prospero gives up sorcery uh, at the end. He, you know, break, he says, I will break my staff and burn my book and you know, be a wizard no more. There's a, by the way, there's a little of that. I, I, there was a real parallel I noticed at the very end when... Uh, Morbius it finally has to face the fact that he created the monster that's killing all these people and he throws himself in front of it and says uh, what is it? I deny you. I cast I, you I, out. I give you up. He doesn't say yeah. cast you out. He says yep. I give you up. And it's very similar to Prospero's line of I'll bury my staff full fathoms deep. He's yeah. saying I'll give, I, I will give up my magic. And they say like okay there's some parallels between say Robbie the robot and Ariel who is the servant who has superpowers well, she's, uh, some, she's as you said, a spirit or a sprite or something that it's it's not. She's not meant to be he. really corporeal. Well, it depends. No, no, That's no, no, the no, no. Hang on. It, no, no, in no, no, no. the it, text, in which the text, I have read and you have not. Ariel, I have read the I have read the synopsis <laughs> and I read the follow up. He has it, Ariel is referred to as he at least that twice. Is, that is correct. However, yeah, in the theater, once, once women were allowed on the stage. Yes. Then Ariel became kind of an androgynous figure and could be played by men or women. In the text, Ariel is male. Right. But later would go on to gain legs and walk on land and marry a prince. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it, apparently, when Shakespeare was around, for those who don't know, you were not allowed to be a woman actor. That just was not a thing. Women can't be on the stage. Well, so you were allowed to be a woman actor. You just couldn't actually do it. It's just right, women well, yeah. were not allowed on stage. It was literally against the law. And to be fair, this is not something that's just in England or just in Europe, because the Japanese had the same way. With the Kabuki theater, all the parts were played by men, period. That was it, until fairly recent times. Um, but it's strangely, for whatever reason, that particular part, according to the articles that I read, once women were allowed, they would more often than not give it to a woman. And I don't know why that particular part, but they did. I don't know if it was to suggest some sort of connection between... Ariel and Prospero, or I don't I know. Think, no, I think it was more to suggest the counterbalance between Ar Ariel and Caliban. That oh. Ariel was male, primitive, violent, and... Uh, sorry, Caliban was male, primitive, and violent, and Ariel was more ethereal, more pure, and more gentle. But I think it's also safe to say that with his deep, booming voice, Robbie's a boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Robbie, Robbie is dead, Butch. Either that or swimwear, very nice. <laughs> Yeah, it's a deep one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so was the opening. Um, so it's it's got some things. It's got a lot yeah. not in common. Yeah. There's this whole scene with uh, a bunch of the ne'er do wells on the boat. Um, 
off drinking and thinking, hey, you know, we should kill this guy and take his stuff. And then they say, well, we won't keep take his stuff. And um, Caliban's sort of watching, and eventually they befriend Caliban. And, and they get him drunk. And, yeah, and they get they all hide under Caliban's cloak. And, you know, it's stuff that just has no bearing on um, Forbidden Planet at all. But yeah. there are... If somebody's told me that they used it as a as a basis, like a couple of bricks to start the wall, I'd definitely see it. And yeah, that's not yeah. that's not a bad idea. I mean, if you can't do do too much wrong, if you're going to base some of your story on some amazingly classic literature, if you're so. going to steal, steal from the best. And there are even a couple of themes uh, that that are kind of similar because uh, part of it is one of the themes in the Tempest is the idea of forbidden knowledge and the fact that Prospero, for all his power, is drawing on what is, and especially in a very heavily Christianized time, mm. like Shakespeare's, evil forces. Magic is not good. Magic comes from hell. It's it's bad stuff. Right. And uh, he, the whole thing of his redemption is that he says, I will no longer be a wizard. And uh, he throws, throws all the his magic stuff away. And Morbia, and it's the idea of power regardless of the source or power for its own sake. And Morbius is—he—he's a guy who believes in science for science's sake. He—it's forgotten yes. that the purpose of science, at least as a lot of people say, at least as I think, is to benefit people. Yes. It's, yeah. Now, one of the things that Morbius does that I think I actually agree with to some extent is once he basically is kind of forced to tell them what the hell's really going on, because he, he basically hems and haws and lets them know only as little as he has to until they basically wander into his uh, study and like, uh, oh, what's all this? And he's like, oh, crap, I guess I have to show you the rest of this. They're like, this is amazing. We have to show Earth. And he's like, uh, no, no, we don't. Um, yeah. Tell you what, I'm gonna sit there and let you have like I'll let you know all about the um, oh I don't know the trash compactor and the uh, food processor and I'll uh, keep the big stuff till later because man's not ready to this for this and he's right unfortunately he's one of the people who's not ready for it. yeah that's the problem he says I mean he'll dole out bits of Krell tech that he thinks that humankind can you know can handle and on the one as you say on one level yeah that makes sense we're clearly not ready for that because the krell weren't ready for it and they were like a million years more advanced but yeah. he's not qualified to do that no but he thinks because of his his expanded Super intellect brain. that he's the only yeah his giant throbbing brain that uh from planet eris <laughs> that only he is the keeper of the and keys again, and to be fair he's got a point on the other hand no he's also he's been alone for 20 almost 20 years so of course he's going to go a little egomaniacal and it, let's face it he pretty clearly started out that way yeah um, he didn't take command of the ship, but you know, once they landed, obviously the only thing that was worth looking at, because the planet's pretty barren. I don't know what they were doing going there, but you know, maybe they had come with um, what are they terraforming? Call that? Uh, terraforming. Well, the stuff. thing is, they didn't have to do but, too much because the planet was basically Earth-like. The atmosphere was a little more oxygen-rich, but obviously humans could breathe there and live there. So when you those planets are pretty rare. But outside the garden, it's all sand yeah. and rock and garbage. No. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, although I you know, wonder. I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and gets everywhere. Sandstorm. <laughs> Sandstorm. Sandstorm. Uh, I actually, there was a parallel um, that I had not made before. Um, and that is that we see, you know, the set I mentioned was was the redressed Munchkin City set. If they say so, I didn't see <laughs> I it. I couldn't tell whatever. either. I mean, I did not really ex expect anyone to come out going, you're out of the woods, you're out of that dark, you're out of that night. <laughs> I, I almost did. No, 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 I didn't. Uh, but so her garden, like we go out there, it's got the fruit trees, it's got flowers and everything. It's got animals that live in harmony. <laughs> and I'm like, I wonder this is supposed to be eaten oh wait there can't be there's no adam oh wait there's jj adams <laughs> that's close enough but i can't help but wonder uh, if that was supposed to be a kind of representation or at least a a hint at that whole garden well, i think that's thing. the idea that that's what morbius was trying to create he wanted to create his own eden yeah uh, and the the plants and stuff there it's like i don't I don't honestly, that's why I don't buy. It's like, oh, so for 200,000 years, that tiger, those deer, and these plants lived happily <laughs> in this 20-mile area, and nobody bothered And of, co and okay. of course, there's a minky. 
I didn't know there would be a minky. <laughs> Does it bite? <laughs> no. <laughs> that minky. is not my minky. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'd, I'd never noticed that before. And, of course, it never occurred to me that J.J. Adams, Adam, and it's like, okay, uh, maybe, maybe not. But it was like, that's that's a coincidence. Uh, but. Yeah, interesting. Uh, what other points uh, struck you? And then question I asked you when you first saw this. How many times have you seen it, would you say? Oh. Have you seen this often? Oh, yeah, I've seen it probably five, six times. Okay. Uh, uh, when was the last time before this that you'd seen I it? I do not remember. I think it must have been back in the... It, it's got to be 20, 30 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's been a long time. But uh, one of the things that, always, that still gets me is when we see the Krell machine... Mm-hmm. It still looks really impressive. Yeah, the, the, the sets and the painting and the way it looks, it gives a great sense. When when Morbius is describing how huge it is, it's very impressive, and you it believe is. it's as big as he says it is. It looks that way, and for 1956, that's really amazing. Yeah, there's some great shots. There are these overhead shots. He says, I forget, it's like one of, this is one of 700 air vents or something. Yeah, yeah. And the air vent itself is probably about 300 feet across. And you look down, you're looking from above as they walk under this catwalk. I don't even a catwalk. It's it's like a bridge. A mall. <laughs> and you and look isn't down. It, doesn't he say there's 7,800 levels? Yeah, 7,800 levels. Wow. And you look down this air shaft and it goes all the way. Yeah. And it is gigantic. And they also do something that i think was really smart and at one point uh morbius is like we don't even there's no depiction of the krell left we have no idea what they looked like the best we can do is look at this arch that appears everywhere their doorway and figure what would go through something like that the way we go through a rectangular doorway and that's the best we can guess apparently the krell were very pointy on top well, and they apparently also had multiple arms, potentially even tentacular arms. I don't know. We don't know. He, men- he mentions at one point, you know, having worked this machine, it would be nice to have more than two arms. But it's really cool because it's just the best you can guess. You know, yep. let your mind play with it. Then, we, speaking of that, we get the id monster. Oh, my God. I loved this as a kid. So the monster that Morbius sends out is invisible because he's not even consciously aware of it. Um, He probably, when it finally does become visible um, to some extent, is pulled from all sorts of different things that he found terrifying or or his hatred onto. Well, it's a very primal, basic shape. It's a massive, roughly cylindrical body and two huge clawed feet and glaring eyes and a big mouth. And that's about it. Yeah, so what happens is uh, the first time it comes through, it sneaks aboard the ship and destroys the Klystron transmitter tube thing that uh, Scotty, I, I'm sorry, that Quinn yeah, has yeah. to uh, try to make by himself. And boy, was he not the proto-Scotty or what? Yeah. It's like, well, frankly, sir, the book says no. Well, so uh, when will he have it? Well, if I don't stop for breakfast. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay, I get it. It's impossible. When can we have it? <laughs> yeah. And the next time, it's like, well, that's not good enough, so I better kill the guy who's making the transmitter. It's also and interesting. The first time the Krell monster shows up, it doesn't leave a trace. It makes no. no sound, and it just creeps on board. The second time, it leaves huge, deep footprints and bends the steps when it walks up it. And my thought was that he, and it, I, I get to the details in a sec because I don't want to miss this part, but I think the I, the implication is he needs more power. The monster needs more power to complete its task. So just to break a glass tube is no big deal, but if it needs to rip somebody apart, which is what it does, we do not see this thing. Yeah. See, I, I thought that it was more of a, a parallel with Morbius getting more and more angry and frustrated with the fact that they aren't leaving. And and what's going on with with JJ Adams and his daughter and that his, too. And, and his rage is drawing more and more power. His subconscious is drawing more and more power from the Krell machine. That that too. Um, the last thing that happens, they've set up a force field fence, um, quite honestly, brilliantly designed because we don't need to see ray beams between the posts. It's invisible, which is fine because we shouldn't be able to see it. And what happens is they pick it up on radar. It gets closer. They shoot at it. They apparently hit it. They can't see anything until it gets to the fence. And then you see its outline in the fence, which is, man, if that's not like the most iconic moment from a 50 science fiction film, I don't know what is, but it's this red raging thing that does pick guys up and throw them around. Um, there's actually some uh, st- some footage, some special effects footage on the, the Blu-ray that shows the guy being picked up on the on the strings. Obviously, it's done by by 
cables and being thrown around and they just animate it and it looks great i mean sure it's obviously a cartoon we know that but you know the fact that they they didn't build some rubberized monster or something yeah when they said they decided to do it like this as an outline yeah when you think of how dopey the alien monsters in the 50 in the 50 science fiction movies looked yeah i mean other than gort who is a very Mm. simple design yep they all look really dumb. Yeah, and, and the electronic tonalities used at this point, that monster is screaming, and it is this really strange, almost living scream. Yeah, that it's, it's making. very primal, but alien noise. And, and again... I'm, I'm sorry, something I never noticed, but I saw in the trivia, was that apparently the id monster has the same kind of beard as Morbius does. Oh, I didn't know. And that's meant that. to be a visual clue. I've seen this movie tons of times and I've never noticed that. But I'm sorry, please go ahead. No, it's just uh, the fact that it's so ill-defined and so s- simple looking, it's less like an actual creature and more like a force. Right. Which, of course, made me wonder, how does it show up on radar? Apparently it's solid. It's solid <laughs> enough. It seems um, to have some kind of mass, but... Yep. Well, it makes footprints, which they, they cast in plaster, which is like... I remember that from a kid, too. It's like, uh, bah, bah, what? <laughs> Giant claw... No, thank you. I don't want to see what this thing looks like. Yeah, and it's interesting when they point out, it says, this thing doesn't make any sense. It, the, the shape of the foot suggests a four-footed animal, but there's only two... The prints show that it's a biped. And then it's walking on the ground when it's got a arboreal claw, like a tree mm-hmm. sloth. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, uh, hints that it's like, this is probably something Frankenstein together, which, you know, again, there's tons of details in this. One of my favorites is actually uh, the gauges. So at one point, they he's explaining the Krell Laboratory, where the, the machine where it, you know, makes the stuff that you think about. And whoever was doing this and i don't know if it's the director or the people working behind the scenes on the set but the little gauges in the back are supposed to show how much power is being used by the machine at any given time and whoever did that is really paying attention because at one point that i think it's the scene with the id monster we cut to morbius asleep in that room and you see the gauges lighting up more and more and more as it's attacking the ship and drawing all the energy um Later on, he even explains what they're for, so the audience knows what they're for. But there's other times when those gauges are doing things in reaction to what's going on. Like when it comes to break into the lab late at the, at the end of the film. when More and just, more of the gauges light up. And as he points out, each gauge is a factor of 10, represents a factor of 10 higher power than the one before it. He says but, going almost to infinity, which I go, no, but sure. No, but the numbers are so high at that yeah. point because everything's a power of 10 that it's like, I know we can't count that high. Yeah. There's actually one little tiny detail that I never noticed before. When he's, when uh, Adam, J.J. Uh, Adams confronts Morbius, says, look, the doctor said it's it's a creature from the id. What's creatures from the id? Id, 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 id. Yeah, yeah. What's the id? And he starts explaining it and saying, this is stupid. I don't know why I'm bothering. Adams starts making a fist and it's very it looks very he's about like to raise his fist and it looks very much like that's his part of the of his mind coming forward and wanting to bash the crap out of morbius um the one thing we can guess thankfully is that the machine doesn't listen to you unless you've been zapped by it so yeah obviously it doesn't respond to the mind to human minds it's only augmented minds well it responds to morbius yeah the doc probably could have done made it do something yeah, but there's a lot of little details. That, like Max said, the design is is great because it's very alien, but it's not unapproachable. It's just like, what the hell is this? But it's also cool looking. Um, the gauges in the background, stuff like that. Uh, the scene where the ship lands, I think, is really well done. Um, it actually comes in. There's some scenes of it flying over Altair 4, which look great. And it's honestly nothing more than a spaceship miniature and a giant sphere painted to look like a planet. Um, it comes in lands. There's a shadow of the ship that looks cool. Admittedly, the little beam doesn't look that great. But, um, but uh, any other um, points you wanted to get out before we let people know whether we liked it or not? No, except to uh, come back to the point you made. made a, I, I see why you mean that Altair 4 cannot possibly be part of the Federation because it got blowed up. Yeah, real good. Yep. Uh, yeah, so when they, they throw off that switch, basically all of the 
uh, nuclear reactors uh, in there are set to explode, which takes the planet with it. And we see it from afar. He says, you have to get 100 million miles away within 24 hours. And they're like, um, okay, bye. And, I, I uh, do have to say, that was one thing that, kind of, that I... There are one or two technical things that kind of bothered me. And one of them is that self-destruct switch is awfully easy to access. Well, if you it's know what it is. Pull this lever and push that thing. No, it was spin this I'm disc s- and push that lever. That's Yeah, all I'm sorry. Even we have more complicated things than that. Like, you got to turn these two keys at once, or you have to enter a code, not just turn, push. That may be, but I don't know that the plot would have really been made better by making it a long time. I know, I know. It just annoyed me. Yeah, that's understandable. Anything else before we... Uh... Those kids and their crazy Krell music. When when they're playing that, all I could think, you know, if you play that backwards, you hear the voice of Jerry Lewis. <laughs> I thought it was Jerry Garcia. No, no. Jerry you Garcia? Tu- you turn it back, you play it backwards, and you hear, real nice lady. <laughs> I think that's true with anything. Yeah, pretty much. That, backwards yeah. lyrics, folks. It was a thing. Um, yeah. Nope, well, I think it it's me, time yeah. to talk. Yeah. The Roundup. What have we been doing? So, Max, you said you haven't seen this in decades, uh, obviously, so you're actually going off childhood memories or, you know, uh, teenage memories, early 20s. Uh, What did you think? I I still think it holds up. I like it. It's still a good, solid science fiction movie. Yes, some of the acting and the the story is, you know, very innocent and very simple in a lot of ways, but it's really well done and it's, you know, it's like a classic. And you can, and it's fun to see how much came out of it, as you say, Star Trek and so many other things. Oh, legacy! Uh, this is a legacy. Hmm. I I think it still works, and I I still think it's fun to see. How about you? This remains one of my favorite films. I adore this film. I got to see it, it once that I remember in a big theater. It was actually at the Science Museum. Um, they got oh, a print wow. of it and showed it. Yeah. Um, I just I adore this film. There was like a handful of films as a kid that I would drop anything and watch. This is one of them. Um, the Time Machine was one. War of the Worlds was one. Those are like my three big science fiction films. Later, when I actually got to watch it and, and understand it, The Day the Earth Stood Still, not the one with Keanu Reeves in it. Um, Good. Whoa. <laughs> um, Barada something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, and I apparently, again, Mr. Reeves is apparently a very nice person. If you're listening, Mr. Reeves, we meet it with, meet it with <laughs> of, love. Yeah, of, of, cor- of course he is. Yeah. I. The thing that I also like about it is that it really does treat its subject seriously. Apparently that was actually a mantra on the set. And that was, we're doing, treat this seriously. This is not a bug-eyed monster thing. This is, we're trying to do something real. And the fact that it obviously draws on some of the best science fiction had to offer. Like, I, again, it doesn't say anything about Asimov. It never mentions the rules, but it's pretty obvious that Robbie is meant to function via the three rules of robotics. Well, we see at least one of them. He, he's not allowed to harm humans. He actually shorts out if he tries to. Twice. When he, when they, when uh, Morbius says, here, shoot the commander, and later when Robbie's like, uh, I'm sorry, but what Adam says makes sense, I can't attack the monster because it's you. Um... But uh, also the whole idea of even using something like the id in a science fiction film. Because, you using know... Freudian psychology. Yeah. Hmm. And I want to say that's still not something like a word that people bandy about very often. No, but most um, people know what it means. And it's it's... The idea here is we're placing humankind against the unknown. How does humankind react? And that is the basis of Star Trek, the original series. That's, you know... Can we be our best? And in this case, it turns out, eventually, both Morbius and Commander Adams can be. Um, I personally, my feeling is that Altera, when she gets back to Earth, she pretty comes close to ruling it. Because she, (laughs) if you let her really expand out of the 50s, if you let her expand as a character, she has a lot going for her. She's really smart. She knows what she's doing. And she's able to say, yeah, sex, not interested. So... Uh, you know, if they had been able to to push that even further, I would have been thrilled. But it's the mid-50s, so what are you going to do? So, yes, if you have not seen Forbidden Planet, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Keep in mind, it's the 50s. It but, is. It's very dated. But put it, keep it in context. I think you'll enjoy it. 
Yeah. But speaking of enjoying things, Max, what will we enjoy next week? Because we're starting a whole bunch of new thing, aren't yep. we? Yep. We're starting a brand new series. We're in Mike and I Become Drawn Apart. You said you'd never leave me. <laughs> I, I lied. <laughs> no, no. Our new series is called Drawn oh. Apart. Oh. And in it, we're going to talk about uh, some notable, I can't say favorite, because probably there's only one. Hey, it was your idea, Sven. It was my idea, Oli. But uh, we, are, we are going to t- discuss movies that combine both live action and animation. And no, we're not just talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, although that is the pinnacle. But believe it or not, there's a ton of others out there of varying degrees of quality and we're going to be subjecting ourselves to them for your benefit. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that welcome. But, uh, <laughs> geez, I was just about to hire you back, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so well, what's the uh, the first in this list of um, wonderment? Well, as I say, it's a classic of uh, live action and animated blending by a legendary animator, and no, I'm sorry, it's not Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I'm talking about a ri- little-known Brad Pitt movie. Yes, <gasps> Brad Pitt. Yep, I he's love in it. Brad Pitt. Gabriel Byrne, Kim Basinger. What Gabriel? What? Who? What? What amazing film is this? Ralph Bakshi's Cool World. Max is fired, and next week will be taken. <laughs> his place will be taken by Bumpy the Wonder Pony. That's fair. Bump, <laughs> Bumpy is a real pro. He'll do a great job. Bumpy the Wonder Pony. I never, I never got a theme song. Uh, no, you didn't, because you're no Bumpy. And so, <laughs> those listening who are also not Bumpy, we say farewell. Have a Bumpyless week. Bye. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and the movie wrench. It's the final countdown! Ah, Coppers!